0: Hello all listeners and welcome to this episode of Hacker Talk. My name is Philip and I will be your host during today's show. If you've been to various InfoSec conferences and you've seen someone that carries around this strange design backpack with antennas sticking out of it, then you've probably seen today's guest. Yes, today we have the pleasure of having the Podware Hacker, creator of Wi-Fi Cactus, watcher of DevCon's Wi-Fi networks, reverse engineer, the list goes on and on. It's a pleasure to have you on Hacker Talk, Mike Spicer, how are you doing today? Oh, really good. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's really fun to uh, to have you on the show. And uh, but before we like deep dive into war driving and all things Wi-Fi, yeah. I wanna know how did you get here? What sparked your interest for technology and hacking?
1: It really started with the idea and curiosity of of people saying things are dangerous, things are things are gonna get pwned and and That always just made me really think like, what can I do to see how that's happening? Because I was bringing devices to conferences. I was bringing phones. I was bringing laptops. And I personally have not had a device that's been compromised. Do a relatively basic security. Uh, Even in the beginning, before I started doing all these crazy Wi-Fi projects and stuff, I would still do some basic hygiene. But I was always like told that, oh, we're going to get super hacked at the hacker conference. And and I've also, also just been like extremely curious my entire life. I've always been like, ooh, internet, how can I get access to all the information? How can I get access to, you know, reading all the ebooks and, you know, and all the software and how can I get access to all the games? And so I've kind of always just had this natural curiosity uh, that's really driven me. And so when somebody tells me something that, you know, is an absolute statement, it's like, I want to know why. So uh, that's really what well, got me into it. it was just digging into it and trying to figure out, you know, th- what is the basis of this? And then it turned into, it got a little out of control. So,
0: <laughs> Do you know if there was any like light bulb moment where you were like, "Wow, well, security is like really cool. And this is something I want to allocate more time to.
1: Absolutely. When I was a little kid in the early, early 2000s, late 99, 2000 timeframe, I started screwing around with software and was trying to cheat at video games and uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to get free access to software that I couldn't afford. I was I grew up pretty poor and I was very fortunate to be given a computer and access to a computer. And, you know, that's really what drove me trying to want to learn about security and, and like how different software was locked you know how how to make the internet connection faster through compression, you know those types of things. I was literally on dial up and you know just trying and and then hearing cool stories about you know friends of mine doing neat projects and tricks, you know uh, and this is in the time too, and it's like yeah uh, there's software being released that was just devastating windows because it was there was no security at the time, and that really was just ingrained in me from a really young age that. I always wanted to be involved with computers, computer security um, and hacking, and just always wanted to be involved with trying to figure out how things work under the hood. And that's when I started doing a little bit of uh, software programming, uh, learning about you know web-based programming too, and then uh, it kind of just grew from there. And th- And specifically like light bulb moments, there's been probably a bunch of different light bulb moments throughout my life and my career. And it's it's always seems like at 2, 3 a.m. when everything is like stumped and you're not sure if you're gonna find a solution. It's like click, oh I got I know how to do this. I can figure this piece out. You know, it's it's like I need to add more radios. And so I think I've had a lot of those light bulb moments that have really been the driving force behind the projects that I've built and the projects that I've uh, worked on for people. And so yeah, it's I wouldn't say there's been one tiny light bulb moment. Well, actually, there's one, bin, bin, one big light bulb moment. And that was probably the movie Hackers. That was probably the most influential thing on me when I was a kid too. Night, night, yeah. The movie Hackers. Yep, the originals. So that was, that was pretty influential. That was, yeah, I wish I grew up in New York, but uh, rural Utah instead. So we tried to make the best of what I had. <laughs> That's cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. That movie,
0: that movie is still a, a great movie, I think. We were talking about it the other day because I have this friend that I, I meet up with every like six years and we get together and we watched it, the uh, from 1995, <laughs> we've been doing it.
1: Hack the planet! Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. How, how did you get into war driving and what was your
1: kind of first war driving experiment? Well, I remember uh, when I was a lot younger, it was originally I was trying to find internet access. And also, mm. uh, I didn't have very many com- access to computers that actually had wireless. And so the whole idea of being able to like see my neighbor's Wi Fi, I, th- I remember the first Wi Fi uh, adapter that I bought was an Aronoko gold uh, PCM CIA slot. And that was like 200 or 300 bucks. I saved money up for a long time to be able to get that. And it was like, oh my gosh, I can see other people's Wi-Fi and I can just get on their network. Like that blew my mind. That blew my mind. And um, I've always, always been really obsessed with wireless. Um, The whole idea that it's all the way around us, you can't see it, but it's able to do magical things. And then also the optimization side of it too. It's like, I've always wanted to, how far can I go? How long of a link can I make? Um, And so there's been that aspect of it as well. that actually all drove me to uh, actually doing a startup wireless internet service company uh, in the uh, uh, mid-20s, 2000s, so like 2010 timeframe. And, you know, actually ran my own wireless internet company. So it's kind of all that curiosity boiled up to the point where I'm like, I can get better internet than what everyone else around me is offering with some crappy DSL with the wireless technology we have. And, uh, so that was, uh, hey, users did you serve? Uh, we grew it to about 250 customers and then sold to a lar- larger ISP. So considering how small of an area, uh, where I'm, uh, where I'm from and where I live, it's, uh, it was quite an accomplishment I was very happy with. And the other thing too, is, is when you're doing that type of work, turns out, <laughs> The internet for people is like life support. And so it's like, if it goes away even for five minutes and sometimes wireless just doesn't work, there may be like a lightning storm and there may be interference. There may be somebody driving a truck with a giant metal thing in the back of their truck that's also going to cause interference and it's going to stop things working. And that people freak out and that, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't take that. I couldn't deal with that. That was hard. Uh, I learned a lot of really hard lessons by uh, building up that company uh, from the core infrastructure, fiber optic backbones, wireless access points—you know, we had I think about uh, twelve or thirteen tower sites. I also had a bunch of people that helped me with it as well. It wasn't just me, but you know, there was a lot of things that were just me and that, and a lot of lessons. But so, yeah, that that kind of further pushed me down this war driving rabbit hole, just knowing how much commercial stuff there is in the wireless too. So yeah. And then finally with like, just everything has radios in it and I'm just, and we're getting more and more and that whole idea that, you know, what, what can be leaked, what information's out there, what radios people are leaving on and don't realize, you know, that's all really interesting to me. So. Absolutely. The entire radio and SDR world, it, it
0: truly fascinating. Do you, mm-hmm. do you have any other radio frequency than Wi-Fi that you're looking into?
1: Absolutely. And that's one thing that like over the years, I've always been really fascinated and trying to do is uh, get involved in different radio frequencies because, you know, Wi-Fi is awesome and, you know, it does a lot of things for us, but there's just a whole plethora of things that are being thrown on various spectrums. So uh, in the last few years, I've started doing quite a bit of scanning with for LoRa and LoRaWAN stuff propagated mostly by uh, this blockchain project called Helium that I'm really interested. Like I opened up one of the devices and it's on the inside. It's like literally a raspberry Pi that has an Adafruit LoRa connector. And I'm just like, you're selling this for 400 and even $600. And then people are reselling them and scalping them for $1,200. And I'm like, this is $80 worth of hardware, right? Maybe. And that's like a like really market. So I'm just I don't know. It's that type of stuff that really gets me when it's like, okay, well, what's the secret sauce here? And then I'm always, uh, I'm always suspicious of blockchain stuff. I always want to, I always want to know what the real world use case is and. Uh, So, and then there's also another network called the Things Network. Is it the Things Network? Yeah, I think it's the Things Network, which is a LoRaWAN based IoT infrastructure for building out your own LoRaWAN, uh, but they help supply some of the gateway stuff. So that's all stuff that I was like really interested in, especially with the um, announcement of Amazon Sidewalk and them turning devices that you've purchased that May just randomly turn into hotspots for these IoT, you know, Amazon connected IoT devices. Like, there's so many things that get interconnected nowadays that just it's really fascinating to me. And so I've started scanning in there. Traditionally, I've I've been interested in like 900 megahertz for Wi-Fi uh, because of the long range of it, and um, there isn't a lot of bandwidth there, so its speeds aren't usually great. But it's awesome for non-line of sight applications. I've always been really interested in cell. I started looking into some CDMA, 3G stuff uh, some years back when OpenBTS. Yeah, I think it's OpenBTS, which was the cell site Simulator came out uh, with the Blade RF. I've always wanted to do 4G and 5G research. Just haven't had the opportunity. I've been able to look at some. During the, the pre g research. So not really, um, because there's so much stuff that's transitioned away from it. And the other thing too is is a lot of the things that work with that... Uh, It has to be in transmit. And when you're transmitting those frequencies, it gets kind of sketch. So it was more or less just me experimenting with it and seeing what I could see. I did see some interesting connections. Uh, Like I have some different phones. I have like a ton of phones that I use for wiggling. And it's interesting, the ones that are able to uh, communicate to these 3G uh, sites and it was it was kind of uh, reinforcing of kind of the stingray stuff that was happening maybe five or six years ago, where stingrays, three G, three G stingrays were uh, being quite publicized. And it's just like, well, the reason is because these devices just want to, they just want to connect to whatever they see. So, and that was true of uh, some Samsung S5s that I had. So those were the devices that I was able to. As far as like any sort of interesting research, as far as like encrypted data or anything like that. I haven't really gotten down that rabbit hole, but, you know, it's it's still fun to set it up, figure out how the nuts and bolts of it work and, you know, in a, in a lab type environment. Yeah. And that's just part of my natural curiosity. I'm constantly trying to figure out uh, the things that I can mess with, the things that I can break. And a lot of the things I do are based on open source software and it's, the community has been huge and helpful in setting these things up. So.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: So. I'm
0: really interested hearing about the the Wi-Fi cactus. What is oh yeah, forked
1: idea to build it. Uh, it it kind of was like a, a transition of ideas, or tra- like year over year thinking about ways to improve uh, the projects that I'd build. So it really came about and started because of um, a project box that I built, uh, basically just this tiny little single board computer with a couple of wireless radios attached to it over USB. Threw it in my backpack, was walking around with it at the conferences and at first around my neighborhoods and stuff just to see if it would work, kind of proof of concept. it. And, you know, and then after doing analysis and looking at the data, I just determined that this is missing information. It's not doing the things that I want. Uh, I had ex- high, much higher expectations of it, uh, that it would do better and then it really just became an iteration process of this is why it failed and the reason it failed is i was using the wrong tools um i was using uh aerodump which is our, you know built very streamlined to strip out any of the data uh that's not going to be useful for cracking passwords for example so i was using the wrong tools I wasn't very comfortable with the tools. I was very new to some of these in-depth tools. I was very comfortable with like packets and packet captures, but not specifically like wireless captures. Uh, That was a little bit new, the the, the physical frames. And then, so as I'm going through the process and looking through the data, I'm like, I wanna see this and I want this to work and I want these pieces of information. And uh, then I went to the community, asked for help, and they pointed me in the right direction. And with doing that, they also introduced me to new ideas. And then I started having ideas too, like, okay, well, what if I add more radios? What if I add these pieces to it? So that ultimately led to uh, originally starting with that one little box, then moving to 12 boxes uh, that had upgrades. Also, Wi-Fi hasn't been the same standard, right? We started with 802.11a, B, you know, and now we're up to AX, uh, technically Wi-Fi 6 with the new naming scheme. So it's changing to an iterating and it's like, I don't want to miss any of that new information either, right? So I want to make sure I'm getting all of it. So the iterations happened. And then Uh, As I'm building these projects out and started showing that you know I can successfully build these projects, uh, I was talking to Darren Kitchen at ShmooCon some years ago and it just spilled the ideas. I'm like, man, I want to capture everything. I want to do all these things. And he's like, I think I can help you with that. What would you need? And I'm like, I don't know, like some, you know, maybe 50 radios, 30, 40 radios, and he's all done. And then within a week, he had a box shipped to my house of all these pineapple Tetras, uh, 25 of them to be exact. And I was like, crap, now I got to build this. (laughs) And so, you know, and and ultimately came down to what would it take to cover the whole spectrum with these devices? What would that look like? And we were pretty close. I I covered about 80% of the entire uh, Wi-Fi spectrum in 2.4 and 5 gigahertz uh, on 802.11n. So I'm super pleased with that, uh, the way it all came together, put all the pieces. I haven't seen another tool that's 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 like that that's able to cover that much spectrum and also is mobile too so um i know there's a lot of people building some really cool stuff and i love it i love seeing all these projects it's very inspiring and you know i'm just so happy to be a part of this community and uh you know have the support and and the help that i've had to be able to do these things so what's the technology behind the wi-fi cactus what is running so at the core of it, it's uh, 25 Hack5 Pineapple Tetras, which each of those have two a to 211 AC radios. And then each of those is connected through Ethernet back through a switch to an Intel Nook that Nook's running uh, Ubuntu on it. And that's doing all the data aggregation and, and grabbing all the individual packets that are coming from the individual Tetras. Uh, and then it's storing that using Kismet Wireless and uh, the wireless monitoring software. So then basically it's it's aggregating all that data back to a main instance of Kismet where it's being stored into a Kismet database. Um, And then from there, I have custom scripts that are running. That's making sure that the individual nodes are up and running, uh, making sure the wireless interfaces stay up because on a solution like that, you end up with situations where uh, interfaces get overheated, uh, weird things happen, some packets get janky, and then uh, you've got to reboot things. So I tried to make it as robust as possible. So it's basically like... 25 little computers connected to a single computer and that all the controls are being shipped out uh, from there. And shout out to Kismet and Dragorn, the creator of Kismet. Like He was so helpful. Um, when <laughs> I first came to him, it was like, hey, I want to hook up 25 Tetras over Ethernet to Kismet as remote nodes. What do you think about that? He was like, let's do it. Let's make <laughs> this happen. So he he just he provided so much and it's really been a testament to how awesome kismet is and the for the wireless platform and it's amazing to see even from where i started using to where it is now just all the neat stuff that has been included in kismet so anyone in your audience that hasn't ever used kismet they should definitely go check it out kismet um, and play around with it it's it's, it's a really cool platform but so that's uh, that's the hardware, and then the software, and then I do have some custom uh, things on there to handle making sure there's the rights are happening properly, make sure that some of the data doesn't get corrupted, and then also um, for some of the conferences, I was live streaming out. Real-time data uh, to dashboards and so that the Nook had an additional wireless access uh, wireless adapter on it rather and then I would connect to a uh, a hotspot and then from my hotspot I would connect it to another computer and then I was streaming out data in real-time so we could actually see the dashboard of the Wi-Fi cactus in real-time as I was walking around some of the conferences so yeah, that was that was uh, a really uh, awesome thing that I was able to do with the help of uh, uh the staff at Def Camp that was at a conference in Romania called Def Camp. So shout out to Def Camp and all the homies in in Romania. So I've just had so many really awesome opportunities to do neat projects and do neat things with the data, the presentations, you know, the the collaboration and it's been it's been it's been mind blowing. It's it's been quite a journey. So
0: what do you do after you come home from a conference? And you have this like giant uh,
1: loot of data it's like
0: <laughs> in the candy store? And you? Just...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, first I haven't slept for most of the conference, so I usually hit the hit the hit the bed and sleep for a few days. <laughs> but uh, uh, beyond that, um, yeah, I, I do. I come back with huge treasure trove of data, and then it's like okay. I'm going to town, start analyzing it. And in some cases, like I've caught, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of data and in some cases, you know, less. And like, but they're all PCAP files, you know, and and Kismet database files. And so it's like, how do I get through this? So, you know, fire up Wireshark, fire up my custom script called PCAPinator, which is a tool that helps you do massive amounts of querying on PCAPs on large PCAP files. Fire those up and then just start digging through to look for interesting things. You know, some of the things that I typically try to look for is uh, DNS is always fun. There's always leaked DNS queries that are out there. Uh, MDNS and then also search for stuff that people have done in clear text because I don't know why there's still clear text in this day and age, but there always is something that's been that's been sent out on the clear text. And then you know, just try to understand what happened. You know, what sort of communications are there? And then <laughs> inevitably, somebody is trolling me. Somebody's trying to throw some data at me uh, to try to see if I caught it in the form of SSIDs, or they'll put it in the payload. Uh, you know, and there's something. Somebody's always messing with me. And I know over the years, it's been it's been pretty fun to try to search through and see that uh, whether it's. Uh, you know, special messages somebody's left me and SSIDs, or uh, you know, some some had some MDNS queries where people were calling me out. It was it was pretty fun. So, and then there was actually some people who specifically built something, and my batteries went dead, so I never caught it. So I feel bad about that too because it's like, dang it, missed out on that mm-hmm. opportunity to see what sort of sort of fun trolley stuff. But you know, there are always limitations with these types of projects and conferences are an ever evolving environment and you know, I try to build that as robust as possible and take into account every, you know, possible scenario. Uh, I mean, the first iteration of the cactus, its runtime was only about 30 to 40 minutes off of a lead acid battery before I had to swap the lead acid battery. So, and that thing weighed, you know, like about 25 to 30 kilos. So it was not, it was. Oh, wow. It, That's- yeah, it was it was it was a lot. And so and it took about ten minutes to swap the battery out. It took five minutes just to get it off my back and two people. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> and then I switched to lithium ions and then that uh, helped it out quite a bit. And um yeah, I don't know. It's just it's 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 evolving learning process, you know, budgets, trying to make sure you have funds for the stuff, and then After you get it built and put it together, actually making sure you can get the thing to run. So that's the that's the next important part. Can you actually make this collect data? And I think the amount of data that I've collected over the years is a testament to the ability that I've been able to do that. So that's
0: awesome. Is there any data that you've been really surprised that you found?
1: You know, one thing that uh, kind of caught me off guard was uh, the DNS queries for Slack. I remember in the heyday of everyone was jumping on Slack and all the projects were on Slack. Now I think everybody's, most everybody's switched to Discord or a lot of communities are using Discord more. But like Slack was big, and I remember um, as I was going through the data, I just kept seeing all these DNS queries because all the Slacks are their subdomains, right? Every new Slack channel you create is subdomains. And so I was just like kind of blown away of all the slacks that I was able to see. And then it's like, what could you do from there? Right. My mind started wandering like, oh, maybe this is super secret slack that these people are trying to, you know, hide at their slack club, but now I have their domain. So, you know, now can I, you know, reach out to someone? Could I use that for Twitter? You know, can like, what is the angle? Can I try to request a sign up from that point? You know, it's like, how can I leverage this? I, never took that very, very much further, but it just kind of, it was, it was kind of shocking and and something I hadn't really thought about. Like, yeah, I mean, of course there are subdomains. So of course all of your super secret slacks are going to be in there. So I think that one was pretty shocking. And then as always, I'm always shocked with Apple devices and, you know, how many times people put, you know, like, uh, John Doe's, John Doe's iPhone. And then if you have a unique enough name, it's like, pair that with, uh, open source intelligence gathering, pair that with the wireless networks that they've been probing for, pair that with wiggle.net and see where they've been. And it's like, you've got a pretty good picture of someone. And all I did was capture their MDMS and DNS probes over, you know, over open Wi-Fi. And that just is crazy. Like, I don't know. That stuff always blows me away. I think too, something that's been interesting is watching the progression and incre- and increase of encryption. I think my first project was in 2015. So it's been uh, quite a while ago that I started doing this. And I think right around that timeframe is when FireSheep came out and there was a lot of people that were still having their websites, not uh, SSL by default, not encrypted by default, or they still had the the unencrypted option. And it was just really interesting to see how much unencrypted traffic there were um, you know, on these open networks, and now it's like I capture something like at you know the, an open Wi-Fi hotspot, like at Starbucks, and there's not like it's 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 data, it's it's encrypted data. There's not as much interesting things to see there, um, and so you know, I mean, it's 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 awesome to see from a security's perspective. Like I'm all for this, and I hope that you know my project has been something that helped prompt some of these things uh, because we're not encrypting it. At the physical layer, we still have open hotspots, you know, but we are encrypting at higher layers. And so I'm all for, you know, for that, for privacy and security, so. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good path that we're
0: going, more uh, <laughs> encryption adoption. Yep. So you, you must like know your ways around the Wi-Fi antennas. If someone wants to build like a small, say Raspberry Pi and they want to go war driving and build something cool, what, the, yep. what, what antennas do you recommend? For example, I,
1: I travel, it's pretty clumsy, but I travel <laughs> around with the alpha cord. I've got that exact setup. Uh, I've got that exact setup. Um, I've got a myriad of antennas. Um, and it comes down to like uh, a bit of what do you want to do with, with your capture. One problem that you can run into is if you start using large and high gain antennas, you start getting more information or you can attack things farther away and which depending on your scenario how you're doing like what you're trying to accomplish that may be defeating some of your goal like for example let's say you're trying to war drive and you're trying to score points on wiggle and you want to you know contribute meaningful networks to the to wiggle and basically if you're using a large antenna you may be capturing things that are you know a block away Or more, or, you know, larger, farther away. And so you're, you're creating a situation where you're not getting as accurate of information because you are capturing it from so far away. So when I'm net stumbling, when I'm out there trying to score points for wiggle, I'm typically just using cell phones. I'm just, I just am grabbing my, you know, my cell phones that have whatever antenna. Typically they're just uh, PCB antennas, uh, not a lot of gain. And the reason is because. I'm going to be driving every one of the streets that I'm going to wardrive. I want, I'm about coverage. I want to maximize my coverage. And then the results that are there are going to be more accurate to where I picked up those hotspots. But I'll tell you this, there definitely have been times where it's like, I want to be able to gather as much data from as far as possible. Like for example, when I'm on a wireless pen test, uh, you want to gather as much data and be in a inconspicuous spot. So I've been parked in adjacent parking lots away from, you know, the target's building and had, you know, a discrete antenna sitting on the dash, you know, try to, to try to hide it as much as possible and then have it sitting there. And, you know, I'm trying to get as much data into that into that network as possible. So I think it really comes down to, you know, what is your objective? And like, for example, the one that you have, like that's a really good one for war driving, but you are going to get those longer away networks. So let's say, you know, you've got gated communities or you've got situations where you're using a cell phone, you're not going to be able to get into those anyways physically, but you want to get those Wi-Fi, boom, throw on that little bit larger. I think that one's like a five DBI gain Wi-Fi antenna and do that. And then like for that one engagement that I did, it was actually a Yagi. So it was a very directional antenna. Uh, you know, it sits up on the dash. It's about yay big. You know, <laughs> as big as the, there we go. About in that big. And, you know, sits on the dash pointed at the target. I, and, you know, you just want to you want to make sure you use the antenna for the job that you want to do. The other thing, too, is this as I'm doing packet injection. And stuff, I didn't want that to go everywhere around me because I don't want someone else to detect that I'm doing an attack. So then I'm using a very directional antenna. Uh, You know, sometimes a panel antenna or like a Yagi for that. So I think antenna decision and choice is really important. And you also have to take into consideration what frequency you're going to be capturing, too, because not all antennas are made equally like that one specifically, I do believe is only a 2.4 gigahertz antenna. And so you try to plug that onto a radio that does dual band and you're going to start having some some you you're going to suffer in that 5 group band. So I think there's a lot of consideration with antenna um that 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 you want to that you want to take into account when you're doing this. So yeah. Do you have like some favorite module
0: or not favorite the favorite models of, of Wi-Fi adapters? Yeah, yeah, Wi-Fi adapters. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh so my favorite one right now is actually the Intel AX210. Um, because the, uh, the, it's going to give you that Wi-Fi 6 and it also does 6 gigahertz. Oh, wait, is it 210 or 220? I think it's a 220. Excuse me. AX 220. Uh, so it's a PCI Express module. And that's another thing that's nice about it too is PCI Express. Um, and so you can put that directly into your laptop, upgrade your laptop with that one. Uh, they're like 30 or $40 on Amazon. Um, and, uh, if you run, um, a, a very recent version of, of, uh, Linux kernel, it has inbuilt kernel drivers that have monitor mode and have a bunch of support in there as well. So it's just, it's been an awesome, I've, I converted, um, my latest project, uh, the wi crack and light, uh, runs that almost exclusively. So. Uh, yeah, and I've started upgrading to those AX210. Uh, yeah, I believe it's the 220s that that have the 6 gigahertz. So I've been upgrading to that. And the other thing, too, is, is the PCI Express uh, M.2 PCIe is really small. It's such a small footprint. And so it's nice. Uh, if on the USB side of things, my favorite is the uh, my, uh, MediaTek MT7612s. Uh, there's also a PCI Express version. It's I think it's the MT7614. And I've used both of those, but the USB ones seem to work best. My previous project, the Wi-Fi Kraken, uh, was built with 14 of those. Um, and I've been really happy with those. Those ones are only 802.11ac, though. Not getting into that AX, no 6 gigahertz, uh, but still getting that that latest, greatest 802.11ac uh, or Wi-Fi 5, I believe. 5e is the technical name of it. But again, the nice thing about these adapters is uh, they've got the inbuilt Linux kernel support from the the, the MediaTek. So nice. as long as you're running a recent version of, of uh, a Linux kernel, uh, I believe beyond 3.29 if memory serves, which anything that you're going to use nowadays, including like Pentu or Kali Linux, uh, they're already going to have all that built in. Uh, you're just going to have a much more stable experience. So has got to be plug and play then. Oh, it's so damn easy. I remember back in the day, like trying to compile my own drivers for the alphas and, you know, a bunch of the RTL stuff. And uh, I I believe that I'm the very first one to ever get the RTL 8812s to go into monitor mode, uh, which was the first uh, 802.11n wireless adapter uh, that we were able to get into monitor mode. So, or excuse me, AC. I think it was 8812 was AC. But yeah, so that was... a. That was a train wreck. They're, they're a really finicky, finicky adapter. But I've spent many nights uh, going back and forth between Linux kernels, recompiling, you know, microcode, just trying to get something to work, drivers. And uh, yeah, that's very painful. And now you don't have to. <laughs> so I'm all about the easy buttons. So shout out to the devs who've done that work. That's, yeah, such a
0: pain in the even if it comes to uh, Wi-Fi adapter or graphic cord
1: or. Oh, uh, yeah, oh. this is, yeah, the pain is real. The pain is real. True truly is. <laughs> so
0: something that I'm kind of interesting is that a lot of people talking uh, that do a lot of wireless pen tests is that they're talking about the having the client detect the authentication attacks. How common do you see that in the real world where people are actually monitoring for deauthentication?
1: It's interesting, the more people that have come to my talks, more people that have come to my talks, the more that I'm starting to see in the environment, people deploying like Kismet to be able to do detection. And that, you know, it's so cheap to deploy. You could re- get a Raspberry Pi, uh, the Pi 4, put Kismet on it and buy a a $30 wireless adapter. And you're, you're up and going and you can start detecting if you have uh, deauthentication attacks in your, in your environment. Um, and so, you know, and I've been preaching that for a really long time and I've seen some of it, like some people deploy it, but a lot of times when it's deployed, it's, It's somebody who's doing it outside of the organization or inside of the organization that's doing it because they want to experiment. They want to have fun with it. It's not the organization, you know, committing to it and deploying and that type of stuff. I have seen, though, on uh, enterprise networks, uh, a number of uh, enterprise systems uh, like Cisco and uh, Palo Alto, uh, to name a few, that I know that they do have some detection and monitoring. But then what happens in most cases that I've seen is those logs go to dev null. Nobody's looking at it. (laughs) Nobody like sees, like the logs happen, everything's there, but there's, it's just, people don't have bandwidth. Right. And in a lot of those cases, they don't even have a security team. It's the IT people doing the security job as well. And they're already getting user requests and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's too much. It's too much. Um, and you know, I mean, and a lot of times, depending on the business and the threat model, I may be the one on a pen test being the only one that's actually done a deauthentication attack to them. So it may not be a situation where, you know, that's a common attack that may happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it really just comes down to what their threat model is. And, and, you know, there's a lot of different companies like manufacturing or, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of different places where this People have a higher threat risk for this type of behavior, you know, uh, especially an organization who doesn't realize that their Wi-Fi goes, you know, a quarter of a mile, half a mile away <laughs> because of the way they've got it set up. Right. So it's just I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's interesting. And I think uh, more people should be deploying Kismet in their environment, deploying, you know, some IDS on this, because here's the thing. You don't know what attacks have happened on your network unless you have visibility into it so
0: so a question i got regarding cracking vpa handshakes do you have Mm -hmm. any good best practices for cracking vpa handshakes?
1: well uh we are truly in the golden age of cracking wpa uh uh, um, handshakes right now i would start with run kismet because in kismet you can actually one click download the handshake when it's captured you don't have to do anything active you can be fully passive just set up your box let it sit for a couple hours I'm sure somebody's going to connect to the network, uh, grab that handshake. And then my best practices are once I have the handshake, uh, throw that thing into Hashcat. And then I always, always start with what's easiest and what's fastest. So my go-to is usually phone numbers. So depending on where you live and the type, uh, always try. You can usually exhaust the whole uh, spectrum of phone numbers pretty fast based off of where you live and how the format is. Um, you know, here in the United States, it's area code, uh, prefix, and then, uh, the, the number and that you can, you can run through that really fast, especially if you're in a targeted area and know that, you know, the area code's going to be such and such, you know, if, if the state has a small number of area codes, uh, the next thing I'll do is I'll throw like rock you at it. I'll throw, um, you know, some other database dumps at it, uh, exhaust a little bit of time from there. And then I'll usually try to do, um, like. People are lazy and they don't want to be typing in, you know, 10, 12, 15 characters on their mobile device when they're connecting to hotspots. So, you know, a lot of times I see passwords that, you know, get up to that 10 length, but not much longer than that. So it's like, how within that key space do I bring that time down, you know, uh, for cracking? And so, you know, I'll try to do some different dictionaries, try to use music lyrics. There's been some fun music lyrics uh, dictionaries that have worked. Um, and then I'll even just try to do, um, mask based brute force. Cause a lot of times you'll see word, word, and then number, two digit number, two digit year, two digit, you know, and so I'll use patterns like that as well to do a mask attack on brute forcing and try to just bring that, you know, bring the number of possibilities down as much as possible. And, and at the end of the day, it's, once it gets to about 12 or 13 characters, unless it's a common phrase it's not it's not getting cracked not with the hardware that i have um and then it's like okay well do i buy more hardware to throw at this and you start getting into a situation where it's like okay i need to 10x the amount of hardware that i have in order to make this a viable crack um and you know how do i bring that down how do i make it more realistic to crack and then you know i just give it a stamp of approval that I'm not cracking this one today. So uh, if, it, if it takes longer, if I usually will try, on, especially on engagements and stuff, they're usually a finite amount of time. It's like I'm hired to do a job and I have to have a report done in two weeks. So at most, I'll spend five days on password cracking. If I can't get it within there, then you know I'm going to say, it may be feasible. I caught your WPA key Uh, It is feasible that it could be cracked at, you know, within a year, it could be, you know, depending on your length, it could be a year, it could be six months. Uh, I just don't have the hardware uh, to go any harder than that. And then uh, always in the end, I always do a recommendation of 15, 20 characters, uh, because that's just going to make it really difficult for someone to crack. So um, yeah, that's been, that's been the way that I always approach, approach it and some of the best practices that I do. So That's really good. There was a a researcher that found that a huge number in Israel uh, were all based off of their um, phone number. And uh, it was a very common practice for people to use their phone number. So, yeah, phone numbers and then, um, you know, common phrases is is another fun one to do as well. And you can find, you know, dictionaries for this all over the internet. So what is the Kraken light? The Kraken light is... So the Kraken first was a project where I wanted to take the power of the cactus, but make it smaller and more conspicuous and have a live screen of information. And it still came out about 25 pounds and giant case and it was a pain in the butt to carry. So I'm like, I need to make a lighter version of this. So that was basically where the light came in. I, I ended up condensing it to about half. It was about eight to 10 pounds in the end. I started using PCI express adapters and I doubled the number of capture devices in it. So it has 25 capture devices. Um, Still has a screen. A screen in it. It has a laptop display that I use uh, so I can open it up and it's kind of like a, a cyberpunkish uh, laptop. So and then I'm using an Intel Nook in there again uh, and then direct access through the Thunderbolt and the M.2 PCI Express slot to run all the PCI Express adapters. So which is 25 of those wireless adapters and You know, it's it's again. It's in a hardened little pelican case, uh, something that I can just take on an airplane with me. Uh, It's gone through security a bunch of times. Um, That one, I don't think I've taken internationally yet. But all of the other devices that I've built have all been internationally. So, um, how is to walk through customs with the TSA agents with that? uh, (laughs) It all TSA TSA usually. uh, I always. Uh, very frequently, I get a secondary scan. So, where they have to open it up and look through. And then I just say it's a very specialized wireless test equipment. Um, and they usually are like, Meh, okay. And then it's, you know, once they look in and kind of poke around a little bit. Customs, though, going to other countries, I haven't had any problems. I've taken a lot of my stuff to, um, I've gone to Japan, uh, Romania, uh, and the Bahamas. Um, I've taken stuff to China. And I've had really any problems going into those places. It's usually on the way out, coming back to the US. They're like, "Did you buy this there? Is this stuff that you purchased? Do we need to have you pay taxes on this or tariffs? And do we need to charge you?" And I'm like, "No, no, no. This is a research project. I brought it with me. There's nothing new. I haven't modified or anything." And so, like, I usually, I usually have uh, some discussion with the United States Customs and Border Patrol about my projects. It's, it's all been really easy, and you know, they just have questions and. Yeah, and almost every time, too, whenever I've traveled, I always end up with the TSA golden tickets that say they've opened all of my stuff. I always get those. So, I think the problem is there's just too many wires, there's too many metal parts, there's too many things running around weird places uh, that, you know, they got to open it up and see what's inside. So, um, yeah, they usually do a pretty good job of repacking things, so I haven't been too frustrated after getting my stuff opened up. So That's good. What are some of the best practices
0: you would recommend someone that, put, that wants to put up a wireless network at home?
1: Uh, number one, I would say make sure that you enable WPA2 and or WPA3 if you, if you have that on your system. Remove backwards compatibility unless you have legacy devices. If you have a legacy device that forces you to use a different older WPA standard or TKIP, I would say you know maybe even set up a separate access point specifically for that if you can. And then your password length, try to get to that 12 to 15 uh, length if possible, and then separate your your IoT devices if you can onto their own network just so that, that way stuff that doesn't get patched, doesn't get updated, uh, isn't sitting on your home network. And that's, I mean, you do those, I think if you do those few things, it's like you've got a pretty hardened home network at, at this point, so... What,
0: what security mitigations have you put up in your personal Wi-Fi?
1: <laughs> of course. Uh, the, one of the biggest mitigations that I do is anything that I'm running that I'm concerned about or that I'm doing any sort of testing on, I always run it on my cell phone hotspot. So then that way, it's completely isolated, completely separated from uh, my home network. Um, device, I don't introduce new devices onto my main home network uh, unless it's been on my hotspot. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty leery of that, but I mean... Other than that, I mean, you know, it's kind of the things that I talked about. I do have a few IoT devices. They're sitting on their own infrastructure. Like I've got that uh, LoRaWAN gateway uh, on the Helium network that's sitting on its own network. Um, I, when I was going through the process of doing some uh, reverse engineering on that, I found uh, uh, an OpenVPN open connection to Alibaba's IoT infrastructure network, which would be really easy for them to come back across that. <laughs> So depending on how the configuration is then yeah, they've got basically just a, uh, a node inside of your house. Uh, and so, you know, that type of stuff, I just want to make sure that I've got isolation. Uh, another thing that you can do if your access point supports it is client to client isolation. Um, that's always something really frustrating for as an attacker, if client to client isolations, uh, it turned on. It's really hard for me to it communicate to other wireless devices inside of your stuff. So I do that on the, um, the IoT network, uh, but I don't do that on my main network because it breaks the ability for my kids' iPads to communicate to each other to play Minecraft. So you got it. You got to have your. You got to have your business use cases, right? Like it's yeah. very important that we can play Minecraft together. So, right. <laughs> so what
0: does the future hold for the Crack and Light? Are you Do you have ideas on rebuilding it or where is the
1: project going? Oh, that's a really good question. I think getting the, I I really want to get six gigahertz captured on it. Oh, also the other thing I added with it is uh, RTL SDRs. I think I want to upgrade and get some larger SDRs uh, so I can get, you know, my goal is to get to around 100 megahertz of of bandwidth uh, capture on SDRs. Uh, so I can be able to do a lot more analysis, uh, with that. So I think those are two big upgrades I want to do to it: get that six gigahertz, get that hundred mega bandwidth, um, on the RTL SDRs. Um, and then I think that project is, is, you know, I'm really happy with where it is. It's about 12 hours of battery life. Um, maybe build another version of it that, uh, has proper cooling. So then that way I can um, I can just run it closed and, and, uh, just run it fully incognito right now. You know, I do have to have the lid open a little bit when I do run that. Um, uh-huh. so, but you know, those are some of the things that I have kicked around in my head for modifications from there. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a really fun, uh, rewarding project. So
0: awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing, um, uh, where it goes. <laughs> so we almost hit an hour now. Thank you so much for joining me on Hack Talk in this episode. Do you have anything that you want to touch uh, more deeper on or think that I have forgotten to ask you that you want to deep dive more into? Oh,
1: that's a really good question. I just be safe out there, everyone physically and, you know, with, with all the stuff that's happened with COVID and everything. And then also, you know, get out there and net stumble, get out there, go join wiggle.net, go download the app on your phone. Uh, I think that, that it's it's such a golden opportunity to to get on the wiggle on the wiggle scoreboard and see what's in the environment around you, see what Wi-Fi networks are happening, what wireless is happening. We're getting more and more wireless scanning that we're capability that we're able to do. Um, if it really excites you, go get uh Kismet, uh, go install Kismet, get your work to install Kismet. Let's get some more Kismet deployed. Um and just have fun with it. Have fun. look at the data. you know, go get your hands dirty. All the projects that I've done are because I've been curious and then went and built a thing. And I just think that there's just an infinite amount of learning opportunity when you when you're trying to put things together and make them work together. so i would just I would just encourage everyone to go give that a shot. So absolutely.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on Hacker Talk, and I hope to have you on uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, definitely. This has been fantastic. I appreciate it.
0: Next iteration of uh, Cracking Light will be. All right, all listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in to Hacken Talk. I'll see you in the future. And as always, all links are in the show notes. Have a good one. Ciao. <laughs> see you.